You're listening to The Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and The Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard, of course, is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, today, uh, I'd like to discuss the topic of your column this week, which you've titled The Dire Consequences of Afghanistan. With the removal of American support, the Afghan government has fallen to the Taliban in, in mere days. And so I'd like to start with a quotation that you have in your column. You write, if a withdrawal plan will cause chaos, the simple choice is not to withdraw, period. Better to stay for as long as it takes, perhaps forever. And Richard, I, I'm going to remind you that you are, in fact, the eponymous libertarian of this show. So how does a libertarian support a foreign intervention, especially when a direct threat to national interest doesn't appear to be present. That's right. Well, I mean, the first thing to understand is that when you're thinking about the use of force, there's two ways to think about it. The first of those is the ways in which it is obligatory and the other ways in which it turns out to be permissive. They overlap in complicated cases, but here's the basic distinction. If somebody is coming at you or some of your citizens as a government, you're duty bound to protect them. If somebody comes after somebody else in the world, you're not duty bound to protect them, but you're certainly entitled to come in just the way if it turns that A is beating up B, C could come in in order to prevent A from beating up C. Uh, B. That is, you always are going to allow people to intervene to prevent aggression from taking place. That's a discretionary act. And the United States then has to decide, does it or does it not want to exercise that discretion? Uh, there's been a long tradition of Pax, P-A-X, peace in Latin, Pax Romana, Pax Britannica, and Pax Americana. And essentially what the basic position is, unless the United States or its other dominant powers intervene uh, for good, somebody else like China today is going to intervene for bad. And once somebody else decides to intervene from bad, uh, the distinction that I started with will start to erode because all of a sudden what the Chinese will start to do will in fact uh, pose direct threats to American citizens or to American territories or to American carriers going in the South China Sea and so forth. And so the issue is, do you want to get in ahead of this thing or do you want to basically get in behind it? And I've always been a strong champion of the fact that getting in ahead is as a prudential matter perfectly correct and as a moral matter thoroughly legitimate. And so when it comes to the places like Afghanistan, you look around and remember now, why did we go there? Well, in 2001, there's under Taliban rule and they harbored all sorts of thugs and terrorists, many of whom actually bombed the United States, the Twin Towers and everything else. Uh, so uh, the question is, you want to say, oh, well, we're not the Taliban didn't pose a direct threat. It was Al-Qaeda that posed a direct threat. Or do you want to use the general view of the criminal law that antecedent conspiracies, cooperation agreements, and so forth are always part and parcel of what you can attack? And I think that was exactly there. The American sentiment was go in and get these guys. Well, once you get them, what do you then do? Well, one of the things you could do is to uh, withdraw. Um, but if you think of the Taliban like weeds, weeds come back when you stop hacking them. And so in my particular view, if you know that they did it once, even after you quell this particular thing, another group in another way at another time will start to do exactly the same strategy. And so I think, in effect, there is no exit strategy from a place like that. You simply have to stay. Now, how do you have to stay is, of course, a very difficult thing. There was a wonderful piece, I believe, in Foreign Affairs by David Petraeus, 
who essentially says staying just doesn't mean being in a fortified garrison. What staying means finding out a way in which you could integrate yourself with the local culture in order to give them some degree of confidence that if they oppose the Taliban or some similar group, they will be backed them up. Many people who were opposed to the stay in the United of the United States overseas uh, thought that the only reason you want to stay was to engage in democracy building, making everybody look like America and so forth. I do not think that's what's going on. What you want to do is to figure out what the local institutions and forces are uh, to align those who seem to be in the right side, not to try to engage in comprehensive reform, but to give them the confidence that if in fact they do their part, you will do their part. And the only way you can give them that confidence is to say, we're not going to leave and put everybody into a lurch. Now, I'm going to go a little bit further because I'm quite steamed up about this issue. Mm -hmm. And so if you start looking about how this goes, it turns out the United States did develop an extremely effective strategy for working uh, with the Taliban. And it had at least three components. Uh, one of them is we would supply them just-in-time intelligence. A second one is that we would supply them with very close air support when they were in combat. And the third thing is that we would basically have a bunch of American civilians who would essentially supply them with the kind of ammunition and other material support that they needed to run this thing. Now, if in fact you do that, uh, you're going to create an army which is going to be heavily dependent upon that. And if you exit, they're not going to be able to function without those things. As the story by a man named Sadat in this uh, morning's New York Times made it very, very clear. So what the Trump administration did, and it was a blunder, is it started to draw down on these things. And what the Biden administration did is it says, well, it's okay so far. It's going to be okay if we do it a little bit further. And then foolishly, recklessly, and ignorantly went ahead and did the whole thing. Uh, so if you look at the margin, and we always look at things at the margin here in climate change, what do you discover? You discover that to get 25 American, 100 American troops out of Afghanistan, you're going to create this endless kind of chaos inside the country, refugee problems and everything else. The correct move, if you thought things were teetering a little bit, was to double the 2,500 to 25 to 5,000 or even 50,000 under these circumstances to make sure that it keeps there. It's a very good investment. And if one starts to remember, there are two other things you have to note. One is that over the last 18 months, I think there were zero American casualties on the Vietnam tour. And secondly, uh, the rather the sorry, Vietnam is a Freudian slip on the Afghan tour. And the other thing, it's amazing when given that protection that the Afghan society, not by us, but by their own means, really transformed itself. Women in politics, children with education, girls not having to be engaged in forced marriages, a genuine entrepreneurial class. All of that is now going to be gone. And I hear so many things, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times, and she says, well, we really think that those people can be like us. I mean, well, thank God they won't be like the tipsters on uh, you know, the fancy streets in New York City. Uh, but the blunt point is they had done extremely well. And so instead of everybody deriding this thing as a failure, they should say, look, the United States has to capitalize these costs. They're small relative to everything else that's going to happen. And the no exit strategy is the right result. I can recall this very vividly being said by John McCain when he ran in 2008. He said, there is no exit strategy. Of course, he lost to Barack Obama, had so many exit strategies that the less we say about him, the better under these circumstances. But McCain was right. And it turns out the, 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 the doomsayers were in fact wrong. So as you mentioned, President Trump 
had an earlier agreement signed with the Taliban in February of 2020 for an eventual withdrawal from the country. So what do you think of this argument that President Biden was just following that framework? And is there any chance that, I mean, we're, we're going back into Afghanistan? Do you think we're done there? Well, I take the first thing. Uh, the Trump agreement was a terrible agreement. I don't wish to defend the man, but you remember, I've never been a strong defender. Uh, basically, I thought he should resign around January of 2017, and subsequent events haven't shown me wrong. Uh, but Trump, how bad as he was, was not nearly as bad as the Democrats were on any kind of issue, including this one. And Mike Pence laid out the agreement that they had made, essentially saying that you have to proceed with negotiations of one sort or another, and it has to be a kind of a stability situation. What Biden did is he simply escalated everything beyond what the Trump agreement had required. He pulled people out faster and more furiously, set earlier and earlier deadlines. Uh, so by the time that the Taliban started to wake up in the morning and smell the blood, uh, they were after it. So I think the answer is uh, that there was a gentle decline under Trump. I do not wish to defend him at all, but a catastrophic decline on Biden. That's the first point. The second point is you've got to negotiate an exit strategy. I don't believe you can do it, but boy, you can certainly do it badly. And that's exactly what happened in this particular case. Complete chaos. Even such elementary precautions as getting your people out before Kabul falls never seemed to cross the people in the Biden administration. And there was a real breakdown on this because essentially, as one of the columns, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal said, Biden was surrounded himself by a bunch of yes men. So nobody actually gave him the other side. He's also a guy of very limited attention span. 78, way over the top. He was never very smart to begin with, but now it's just hopeless. So you put all these things together and you get yourself some sort of a calamity. Now, will we have to go back in again? Well, if the Biden administration is around, the answer may be yes, but the actual behavior is probably going to be no. What will trigger the United States going in again, and it will be much more difficult this time than in 2001, is if some major offense against the United States or its people are launched from the soil of Afghanistan. At that point, I don't think you'll have any choice. Uh, but I think, in effect, that Biden is now essentially wounded um, in all of these things, and that what happens is instead of him basically saying, I'm sticking to August 31st, right, in an effort to basically kowtow to the Taliban leadership, he should have sown some muscle. And I would have at the start, you know, send in 5,000 troops and take back Bagram Airport base and then defend it and then figure out how to give aid to the various Afghan resistance forces in the north who are fighting him. I would not want to pull out the way he did. I know the majority of the American public wanted to pull out, but the job as a president is not to kowtow to majorities when they're wrong, but to persuade them that, in fact, a better course of action has taken place. I wonder if we redid the poll today uh, that we did say six weeks ago, whether the result would be the same. So as we're talking right now, there's still a few thousand Americans stuck in Afghanistan. We're trying to get them out. And there are tens of thousands of Afghan citizens who helped the NATO coalition and are now marked by the Taliban for retribution. So my question to you is, what can our refugee policy do? What really should it be doing in order to uh, protect these individuals? Well, unless you're prepared to use military force in Afghanistan, which Biden is not, uh, these people are essentially going to be rounded up, tortured, killed, or otherwise imprisoned. Uh, there's nothing you could do to escape that. Uh, the French and the British and maybe even the Germans are going to keep some troops there to try to help. But without the United States, uh, this is going to be a pretty futile stuff. So you can't do much about that. 
there is, however, what about the people who are military people miraculously managed to get out? Some of them went to Doha and evidently the conditions are unsafe, unsanitary, insufficient food, plumbing facilities and everything else. And certainly uh, this is squarely on the Biden administration. You're not in a combat zone there. This is something which you could have prepared sensibly and we did not. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, uh, this, uh, this administration is a complete shambles. And, and I think the real point is, well, do you want to go back in? Answer with a competent commander in chief, yes. Uh, with this commander in chief, I'm really not sure because I don't have any confidence whatsoever in his judgment. And I dare say at this particular point in time, probably 80% of the Americans agree with me. So uh, we are in what I regard as a desperate uh, situation in the short run and probably in the long run as well, because uh, there was a bombing today in Kabul. Naturally, the, the Taliban said, we had nothing to do with it. There'll be another bombing and they won't have anything to do with that one either. Uh, evidently, if they give a general denial, everybody has to believe them. Uh, but you're trying to figure out who is doing this. And I don't think there are a lot of other obvious suspects uh, to pin this on. So, Richard, there, well, maybe we'll end here. There, there have to be more lessons here than just how to rapidly withdraw from a country. I mean, what does this say to our allies, to Israel, to Taiwan, to Japan, to South Korea? Um, and are there other areas of the world that you think we should pay more attention to now that we're now that we're breaking our promises to the Afghan people? Well, I mean, first of all, take Israel. I mean, this began with Obama, who was on foreign policy, a terrible president. This was the man essentially who drew a red line in the sand and then simply bleached it out by getting the Soviets to take charge of the particular missiles. Assad is still around in power and hundreds and thousands of people have been murdered and displaced because an American president was not prepared to use force. Uh, then also before that in uh, in Iraq in 2011, he negotiated a chaotic withdrawal, the same kind of mental frame that exists today with respect to Afghanistan. And then you had the caliphate, you know, the al-Qaeda became very powerful until enough force was used to bring them back into line. Another terrible mistake. Third, if you remember, back in December of 2016, when he was a lame duck president, uh, what he did in effect is he refused to uh, veto one of the Security Council res resolutions uh, that was prepared to give something akin to uh, provisional membership in the uh, United Nations of the Palestinian groups and so forth, even though they don't have any particular territorial strength. And so you do this, and what happened in the Middle East? Well, the first thing is, all of a sudden, everybody looks around. The Israelis look to the Saudis. Uh, they look to the Egyptians to some extent. Uh, and then they have to make the following question. You know, uh, either we hang together or we're going to hang separately because we can't depend upon the United States to do very much for us. We hope that we can do it. And for four years, I think, on the Israeli front, uh, Trump was, you know, more better than worse in the things that he had done. Uh, but, uh, you know, with Biden coming in, immediately it started to fall apart again because there's always a very strong part of the democratic uh, left wing, progressive wing, which regards Israel as a colonial power akin to apartheid, which means that you don't give them when there are rent strikes and things like that, a lot of support. And then you get another round of violence with Hamas uh, that uh, is going to take senseless numbers of lives. And so I think the first thing that everybody ought to do everywhere around the world is to say that the United States, at least for the next three and a half years, is run by a loser and that we have to make alliances ourselves. The Japanese, I think, are going to have to probably send some people into Taiwan in order to say we're going to do it. I hope the United States, since we said that we would defend them, would do it as well. Um, I think, in fact, the Indians better start to make peace with the Pakistanis because they're also going to face the Chinese. 
Chinese and so forth. Uh, the Australians, if they could ever get themselves out of their quarantines, are going to have to be more aggressive in the uh, Pacific as well. Other nations are going to have to step up. The other native nations now, in NATO nations, actually, I think really have to come to the following grim conclusion. They can't rely on the United States either. If you recall, one of the other things that Obama did is he managed to withdraw a lot of tanks from uh, Eastern Europe or from the west, eastern part of Western Europe, uh, and he had to bring them back in. And he also made a bunch of deals with respect to missiles that essentially pulled protection from American allies. I mean, he was terrible on all these things. Obama is terrible on all these things. I think what we have to do is uh, hope that there's a change in the control of government uh, and so that the House and the Senate don't go along with the president anymore. And before that, I hope there are enough Democrats who have enough sense to realize that they are backing a total loser on these issues and will do something to try to stiffen his backbone. I mean, just to give you one little thing, I was reading about the 2015 stuff and John McCain was, you know, a posthumous hero on many of these issues. And one of the people he opposed for Secretary of the Army was none other than Mr. Blinken, who is now the Secretary of State. I mean, I think it starts to tell you something about the way in which this administration starts to work. So we have to change if we can domestically, but everybody else in the face of the world has to realize uh, that they have to arm up at this particular point because Pax Americana is dead. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, every week on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.